Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. Today is just me. I thought I would talk about evolutionary psychology. I recently decided to dive deep into the field or as as deep as I could get within, I don't know, five, six, seven weeks. And I discovered a lot of interesting things and I thought I would share them with you. But first, just a few things. If you want to email me, you can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. You can also go to our website at psychologyinseattle.com, and you can look at various different things, including the Contact Us page, but also the Support Us page, which if you could go there and follow the instructions on how to support us, that would be wonderful. We only do this podcast for you, and when we know that you're out there, then we're more likely to make more podcasts. So let yourself be known. All right, so let's talk about evolutionary psychology. First off, let me just cut to the chase and tell you my general thesis about this presentation. My stances after reading a lot and talking with colleagues, my stance is that evolutionary psychology as a science, I think, has merit. And I think research within evolutionary psychology can provide us with some useful findings that will enhance not only psychology but, but other fields. However, when I actually read the various research, and I searched through hundreds of research articles and books, I found that 99% of the research and literature within evolutionary psychology has major flaws, and I'll get into that later. And it's as if they don't understand what they're saying. And, and I'm not an expert in this, so maybe if I had a debate with them, they would set me straight and really help me to understand. But... I find that a lot of things that they say have some major flaws. And again, I'll get into that later. But I applaud their efforts. I don't think that they're stupid or somehow evil. I think they're trying. And as with any science, as it's in its infancy, which I think evolutionary psychology is, there's going to be some uh, mistakes made. When evolution began, uh, major mistakes were made. And it's taken us 150 years to get to where we are today. And so where will evolutionary psychology be in 150 years? So it's just something to think about. Before I critique the research, let's let's start from the beginning here, or the relative beginning. So throughout ancient history, most people believed human beings had been created directly by God or by some other supernatural phenomenon. For example, according to the Bible, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, sprang into existence by God's will. You know, skipping ahead many, many centuries, in the late 1700s, Erasmus Darwin, Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, introduced the idea that all living things emerged from a common ancestor. Many of you may not have known that. I didn't know that until I did some of the research here, until I did some of the reading, uh, that Charles Darwin's grandfather actually introduced the idea that all living things emerged from a common ancestor. Interesting, right? He also hypothesized, Charles Darwin's grandfather, he also hypothesized that competition was the driving force behind evolution. Later, in 1859, when Charles Darwin published the book On the Origin of Species, he proposed a plausible mechanism for this evolutionary change, and thus began the study of evolution by natural selection. All right, now let's go on to biological evolution in general and its, and its major concepts, because it provides the foundation for evolutionary psychology. So the theory of natural selection is based on three basic premises, variation, inheritance, and adaptation. The premise of variation refers to the idea and observation that no two instances of a species are physically or behaviorally identical. 
So when you look at humans, some are tall, some are short, some have different skin color, this sort of thing. So this is phenotype. So the phenotype of one person is that they have brown hair and the phenotype of another person is that they have blonde hair. So this, this is the premise of variation. The second basic premise within biological evolution is inheritance. And this premise is based on the observation that these variations in phenotype are inherited from one's parents. And some of that variation will be passed on from one generation to the next. So not only do you have variation within a species, so forgetting about cross-species variation, but within a species you have variation, and those variations are inherited from one's parents, and those variations are likely to be passed on to the next generation. So that's the, the second basic premise of evolution. And the third premise is adaptation. And this refers to the competition among individuals for scarce resources, such as food, mates, and shelter. And that some of these phenotypes allow some individuals to compete more effectively than others. So this is an important part of evolutionary theory, right? So again, adaptation refers to competition among those individuals within a species, and that those who compete better tend to have more offspring, right? So, so in other words, those individuals who are better able to garner resources are more likely to produce offspring, and those offspring will inherit the beneficial traits of their parents, making them also better able to compete as their parents were. This is the process of natural selection. Uh, natural selection is the selection of genetic traits that increase the individual organism's chance of producing offspring. So through this ongoing process over time, slowly over time, organisms become adapted to their environment because those individuals who compete better to garner resources from that environment tend to reproduce more, and therefore each generation is more suited to the environment, as long as the environment doesn't change, which it usually does. So these advantageous traits are described as naturally selected because the organisms that are more fit for the environment are able to survive and pass on a greater portion of their genetic material to the next generation. This process as, as a whole is called biological evolution. So as an example of this, I thought, uh, I thought up this example of a cake recipe. I, I don't know if it makes any sense, but bear with me on this one. Okay. So, so to imagine natural selection, to imagine evolution, uh, take, let's imagine that you have a cake recipe. And, and it's, a, it's a very good cake recipe, meaning that when, when people follow it, it produces a, a very delicious cake. I've always liked the word delicious, you know, it just has, it just, it sounds delicious, if that makes any sense. All right, so, so you have a, a cake recipe. Um, people like your cakes uh, so much that they, they often ask you for your recipe. Uh, but in order to get your recipe, this is pre-internet, so, so people have to come to your house and hand copy your recipe. So they, you know, they pick out a piece of paper and a pen and they, they look at the recipe and they copy it. So because of this, a human copying system. Occasionally there are copy errors, or shall we call them mutations, in the recipe. Most of these errors or mutations result in substandard cakes. For instance, like um, a cake made of sawdust instead of flour. That would be a disgusting cake, right? And, and so each time a repulsive cake is, is produced, that mutated recipe is thrown away. Um, while the exact copies are propagated through the neighborhood and into other neighborhoods. But then one day, someone accidentally changes the recipe for the better and not for the worse. It has the addition of chocolate chips. And everyone knows that chocolate chips 
are a wonderful addition. And let me just go on a tangent here. Sometimes I get a chocolate chip cookie or what I think is a chocolate chip cookie and I bite into it and immediately I realize it's not a chocolate chip cookie. It's an oatmeal cookie with raisins in it. And I think I have been duped and I am bummed out. If the baker is, for instance, watching me eat the cookie, I have to act like I like it when, in fact, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. So for you bakers out there, either don't ever make oatmeal cookies with raisins in it or tell the person prior, you know, hey, I know this looks like a chocolate chip cookie, but in fact, it's, it's, an, it's an oatmeal cookie with raisins. Common courtesy, people. Come on. All right. So someone changes the, the, the recipe for the better and, and it has the addition of chocolate chips. So someone is copying the recipe and for whatever reason, um, they just accidentally write in chocolate chips when, when the recipe, the original rep- recipe didn't have chocolate chips. And suddenly the neighborhood explodes. Everyone starts asking for this new mutated recipe. Over time, the original recipe without chocolate chips diminishes in number and eventually becomes extinct. It becomes extinct altogether since it, it, it cannot compete with this new recipe with chocolate chips. And this cycle continues. Each preferred mutation is selected, is selected for, and the mutations that are not preferred are selected out of the gene pool. And this process over time creates better and better cake recipes. Imagine there is a sudden change in the environment. Suddenly, chocolate chips become scarce. The chocolate chip factory has burned down, and there are almost no chocolate chips available in the environment. So when we come back to our recipe, at any one time, there are a number of mutated recipes being created due to copy errors, right? So when the, when the chocolate chip factory burns down, it's not as if 100% of the recipes are uniform. And one of these mutated recipes at, the, at that time when the, when the factory burns down, one of these recipes is perfectly suited for this chocolate chip famine. It is a cake with yogurt chips instead of chocolate chips. And yogurt chips happen to be abundant. And I personally have, happen to be a fan of yogurt chips, if, if, you, if you must know. So even though yogurt chips are not as tasty as chocolate chips, which, you know, is debatable, honestly, um, this yogurt chip trait in the, in the recipe is propagated throughout the neighborhood since it is adaptive to the current environment. So the chocolate chip factory burns down, and this, this one mutated recipe is suited perfectly for that new environment, that new sudden change in the environment. And all the other recipes start to dwindle out. And this one recipe with the yogurt chips suddenly gets copied and copied and copied. And before long, the entire neighborhood is filled with cake recipes with yogurt chips and and no cake recipes with any chocolate chips in it. So that's my way of trying to explain natural selection that I came up with. It's also kind of funny to imagine a chocolate chip factory burning down to the ground, you know, all that melted chocolate kind of oozing out, dogs licking it up out of the gutter, you know, yum, chocolate. Oh, but I think chocolate's poisonous to dogs, isn't it? All right. So getting back to natural selection. So in the natural world, not in the cake recipe world, genetic copying errors usually result in no effect or reduced survivability. So if a dog is born with five legs instead of four, this um, is a mutation that will reduce its survivability um, and make it less likely to pass on that trait of five legs, if that makes any sense. But on very rare occasions, a mutation might produce an organism that is better fitted to the environment and better able to reproduce. But it, it, it should be noted that there's a difference between genetic mutation, which is 
any change in a DNA sequence away from quote-unquote normal, and a polymorphism, which is a DNA sequence variation that is common in the population. So in other words, again, getting back to humans, you have humans with brown hair and you have humans with, with, with blonde hair. This is a polymorphism. It's not a genetic mutation. But if someone was born with, say, purple hair, then that would be a mutation because it's considered to be outside of normal variation within the species. Um, and scientists have arbitrarily defined this cutoff point between mutation and polymorphism as 1%. In other words, if the frequency of a trait is lower than 1%, it is considered a mutation, whereas if it's a variation, it, it'll show up in more than 1% of the population. All right, so that's biological evolution. Now let's go on to evolutionary psychology. Basically, the in my opinion, the two main things that preceded evolutionary psychology, which are worth noting, are evolutionary biology, obviously, and also instinct theory. Um, over the millennia, there have been many debates over whether or not humans and other animals have instincts or pre-programmed behavioral motivations and feelings and thoughts that are genetically determined, um, so to speak. And it gets quite complicated in terms of the philosophy. For instance, are you born with the instinct or is the instinct programmed into your development? You know, for instance, with teenagers, uh, a lot of them will suddenly have sexual urges. Well, they're not born with those sexual urges emerging at the time of birth, those genetic instincts emerge after puberty. So anyway, so there's lots of different ways of looking at instincts, but but it's it's worth noting that there have been a lot of debates about whether or not humans have instincts. And, you know, I, th I think most of us can accept that animals have instincts, particularly animals that seem to exhibit highly instinctual behavior, like like turtles who, upon being hatched, instinctually just run to the ocean. Uh, you could argue that some of the turtles are just following the herd, but the very first turtle, I, I don't know if you've seen, I've just seen these PBS uh, specials on, on animals and the, the, the mother turtle will walk up the beach and will dig a hole. Uh, it looks very laborious. And then she lays, I don't know, hundreds of eggs in a hole and then covers it up with sand and then walks back into the sea, never to look back. And then when the, um, the first turtle hatches and instinctually crawls its way up to uh, the surface of the sand and then again instinctually just runs to the ocean. If we could get into the mind of that baby turtle, uh, what would it be thinking? Uh, would it be thinking, hmm, that water looks safe or hmm, if I don't get to the water, a seagull is going to eat me up. Or I come from a long tradition of, of swimmers. Uh, therefore, you know what? That's my role in life. I'm going to swim. We could imagine that's probably not what's going through the turtle's mind. There's probably very little going through the turtle's mind other than an instinctual urge to uh, go to the ocean or to maybe it's even the instinct is to is to go downhill because, you know, we know that beaches are generally downhill toward the water. So maybe it's not toward water at all. Maybe it's just you know, go down. So we can imagine that a lot of animals have instincts. Now, is all animal behavior instinctual? Absolutely not. I mean, there there's tons of evidence looking at, and again, I'm not a biologist. I probably should have looked up some examples, but off the top of my head, another example that I remember hearing on the radio was that whales, when they sing underwater, you know, that 
worth seeing. I can't really make a good impression of it, but that um, they learn that from each other and that when they are recorded over time, their songs change over time and that these songs are, um, they help identify them. Again, I'm, I'm not a whale expert, so I could be saying that wrong, but there's countless examples of how animals exhibit non-instinctual behavior. And when we look at ourselves, we certainly can see how we could exhibit non-instinctual behavior, like is podcasting instinctual? Right now, I'm, I'm talking into a microphone and trying to provide information and maybe a little entertainment to, to the masses. Is, is that instinctual in and of itself? Probably not. But is the instinct to communicate or the instinct to reach out or the instinct to connect in all of us, maybe. How does that manifest? Probably in various ways. Um, I would argue that humans are instinctually social, that we are born with the disposition to want to connect with other human beings, to want to fall in love, to have attachments, to socialize, to feel acceptance from other people. I would say that we do have an instinct for that. Now, how does that manifest? Well, in one culture, that'll manifest in podcasting. And in another culture, that'll, that'll manifest in storytelling or in dancing or in music making or in um, romantic relationships, obviously. So there's another way of thinking about instincts. But anyway, so just know that there's a lot of debate about instincts. And you'd be surprised what people think. I mean, there, there are people within psychology... I know, who believe that, that all of our behavior is learned and cultural. And they have a really hard time accepting that any of our behavior would be biologically influenced or determined, which I find to be very, in my opinion, problematic, shall I say, because we're animals. We're animals like any other animal. And, and certainly our intelligence and our self-awareness can supersede a lot of our programming, for instance, one might argue that we're perhaps programmed to be quite selfish and, and maybe not very giving to other people, but because a lot of us hold the value that we should give to others and that we should be morally good and, and we can put ourselves with our own willpower into other people's shoes and imagine that they would really want help and need help and, and we can give to those people. We, we can say that we supersede our nature, so to speak, when we do things like give to charities that help people that we'll never meet. So certainly we do have things that we can do beyond our instincts. I'm sort of rambling right now. So I'm going to very briefly summarize the mainstream evolutionary psychology concepts. Essentially, evolutionary psychologists, mainstream evolutionary psychologists, adopted an idea from cognitive psychologists, which is that our brains are made up of discrete programs or psychological mechanisms or cognitive modules. They're called various different things. And so the idea of massive modularity is that the brain has a large set of these cognitive modules or psychological mechanisms. Each one of these mechanisms is programmed to deal with a particular problem. It's, it's programmed to provide a solution to a particular problem. So as an example, you walk up to the edge of the Empire State Building and you look down. Well, there's a, a psychological mechanism that responds to that stimulus of being at great height and looking over the edge, and it triggers a response, a fear response and an impulse to move away from the edge. 
So it's a very simple thing. Another psychological mechanism might be someone smiles at you and you instinctually smile back. You get a good feeling and you are compelled to like this person or something like that. So when you look at the brain or the mind in this way, you would imagine that there would be many, many psychological mechanisms, and that's what they're saying. And, and in evolutionary psychology, as opposed to cognitive psychology, they believe that these psychological mechanisms all evolved because they provided our species an advantage to not having it. So, for instance, we might have adapted to our environment 100,000 years ago uh, on the African savanna by having a tremendous craving for high caloric foods, such, such as sugars and fats and animal meat and this kind of thing. The reason why we developed that craving was because it was to our advantage, because the environment didn't have much of those items around and they were very hard to come by. If high caloric food was extremely abundant, then we wouldn't have needed to have evolved the psychological mechanism to crave that food. So as a result, because the, that sort of food was extremely rare, presumably, on, on the African savanna 100,000 years ago, and today in the environment, it's highly abundant because we're able to provide just truckloads of it at a low price. We have what we call a mismatch in our environment, in that our current environment is mismatched to what we evolved to deal with functionally. And as a result, you have increased weight gain among humans. In a sense, we evolved the taste for potato chips and french fries and burgers and candy and, and chocolate and all these things, uh, salty things, I'm guessing, were not as abundant but very necessary to our survival 100,000 years ago. But now salt, salty things are uh, as easy as um, just going into your pantry. 100,000 years ago, you probably had to run for 50 miles or something just to get something as tasty as a, as a, as a grape. But now you just have to walk two feet to the fridge or the, to the pantry, and, and there it is. So that's another example of a of a psychological mechanism or a cognitive module that was selected for through evolution 100,000 years ago. For, for instance, uh, using the high caloric craving psychological mechanism, 100,000 years ago, you have two tribes of people or two gene pools, and, and one gene pool doesn't crave high caloric food or salty food, whereas the other one has the psychological mechanism uh, to crave that just by as a random mutation. And the tribe that really craves this high caloric food will do what it takes to obtain it and, and therefore get it and eat it and get the salty things because we need, we very much need sodium. And the tribe that, that doesn't care slowly becomes malnourished and dies off and doesn't have offspring and, and therefore their traits are eliminated from the gene pool. Whereas the people who craved the salt and the and the sugars and the fats were able to survive, have children, and pass on that trait of having that instinctual craving. So another idea within evolutionary psychology is this idea of universal human nature. So in order for something to be an instinct, in order for something to have evolved, it has to be relatively universal among all humans. 
And to me, this is where research really becomes difficult. In order to prove that something is universal, not only do you have to study cultures from all over the planet. I mean, you can't just say, oh, well, we surveyed people in Washington State and also in Kansas. You have to um, go all over the world, which is extremely expensive. I mean, it, it's hard enough just trying to get a 200-person study off the ground in, in Seattle, let alone a you know multi-thousand-person uh, study in places where the infrastructure just isn't even set up. I mean, most studies are done on college students, undergrads, because you have a lot of students in college that are willing to get extra credit if they participate in a study. And so it, it still costs money to do that, but relatively a lot less than if you're trying to survey, say, uh, a bunch of people in, uh, I don't know, Mongolia. It's extremely expensive. So to prove that you have a universal psychological mechanism on your hands is extremely difficult. And as I'll get into later, I, I think that uh, because of this, a lot of authors and researchers and thinkers within evolutionary psychology uh, have not followed this tenet of evolutionary psychology and just skipped it altogether because it's too difficult. So basically, that's evolutionary psychology in a nutshell, that you have psychological mechanisms that evolved to deal with particular stimuli, stimuli that are beneficial to that individual that allows them to uh, grow up and survive and have, have children, and then those psychological mechanisms are, are passed on. Um, let me th try to think of some other that I can imagine. Well, the instinct to have sex. I don't have a statistic in front of me, but I think something like in the upper 90s percent of people studied like to have sex. There are certainly people who don't. Most of us, I think, could agree that it's a universal trait for the most part that humans like to have sex, that our brains were programmed in such a way to make us crave sex, to give us a reward upon having sex in several different ways, not only just pleasure, but also bonding and, and this sort of thing. And we could see why that would be necessary for survival. I'm guessing, again, 100,000 years ago in the African savanna, they didn't understand sperm and egg biology. So biology had to compel the early humans to have sex in order for them to reproduce. When the salmon swims upstream to lay its eggs, and when the male salmon comes by and fertilizes those eggs, does the salmon understand that this is the next generation of, of salmon? I don't know. I'm guessing not. Uh, it's, it's, it would seem likely that it's instinctual, that they just feel a compulsion to do so like an itch that can only be scratched by swimming upstream and doing those behaviors, <laughs> because I don't know how to describe salmon sex. And again, for, for, for many people, when I talk with them about this, they, they don't like to think about their behavior as instinctual. Now, some people are completely comfortable. In fact, some people are a little too comfortable imagining that all human behavior is instinctual. But, but some people think, look, I, I'm, having, I'm choosing to have sex because I like sex, and I'm choosing to have sex not because I was programmed to do so, but because it's good for me. I like it. It's a part of my existential goal in life. Us modern humans are, are beyond our animal nature. And, you know, it, it's a fine argument, and I, I can't really refute it with any hard data. But I would say philosophically, it's a little strange, again, to think that 
humans are the only non-instinctual sexual animals and that many other, if not all other animals who have sex, as not, not all animals have sex, but for, for those that do, that they all feel an instinctual urge and, and humans, for whatever reason, don't. Now, again, how much of it is instinctual and in what way is it instinctual? It's quite debatable there. And this is where evolutionary psychology, when they run into the issue of homosexuality, because why would someone be attracted instinctually, as it seems to be the case, to someone of the same sex when that wouldn't serve any evolutionary, seemingly obvious evolutionary benefit? So 100,000 years ago, again, uh, if the primary reason for a, an individual organism's existence is to reproduce and a male caveman is sexually attracted only to other men, then it would seem, according to standard mainstream evolutionary psychology, that that person and that, that psychological mechanism of being attracted to someone, that instinct of being attracted to someone of the same sex, would eventually get selected out of the, of the gene pool because those people who have an instinct to couple with someone of the same sex will not have children and therefore not pass on their genes. But when we look at humans today and humans in history, it would seem that a good percentage, 5, 10, 15 percent of humans have this instinct to couple with someone of the same sex. Um, and again, it gets complicated. It, is it genetic? Is, is all sexuality uh, learned as we, as we grow up? It's difficult to tell. I mean, I, I could certainly see that being possible. Maybe we're born with a, an instinct to have sex, but uh, through our interactions with our environment, we sort of unconsciously choose which gender or both that we want to couple with. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. But of the theories that I've heard about homosexuality in, in terms of how it was selected for are the following. I'm trying to think if I can remember them off the top of my head. One is, is that when you have, and this one seems to be the most logical to me, but again, it's hard to prove this with actual science, but is that that individual, say a male or a female who's attracted to the, to the same sex a uh, hundred thousand years ago would not have had children and would therefore not have passed on their genes. But if they were a part of a group of people and they took care of children who were closely related to them, then that would increase the likelihood of those children that were closely related to them and therefore shared some of their genes to survive. So uh, another way of putting it in my mind, and I've never heard anyone describe it like this, but the, the way that I think about it is that if in the genetic code of a, of a particular gene pool, so of a particular group of people, there is the chance, uh, say 5 10% chance, that any child will be homosexual and no more than that, then a good percentage of the gene pool, that group of people, will be attracted to someone of the opposite sex and therefore have children. And those 5-10% of others who are not attracted to people of the opposite sex will be available to take care of the children because it takes a village, right? And the reason why it wouldn't be 100% heterosexual in the gene pool is because there might actually be an evolutionary advantage of that gene pool having 5-10% of the people homosexual because they can dedicate themselves to taking care of, say, uh, children who lose their parents uh, to death or who 
have parents who aren't particularly good at parenting or who have parents who are busy in, in some other way or the children are particularly needy and need additional grown-ups to take care of them. These people who were born with the instinct to be attracted to people of the same sex would be available for, for that need and therefore the gene pool will, will survive even though the people who were attracted to people of the same sex never had children. Also, it's possible that human and other animal behavior is not entirely programmed, so to speak, that we have variations in our behavior. And as long as the variations in behavior don't completely screw up the survivability of the gene pool, then they're not necessarily selected out. So the effort to try to prove an evolutionary advantage to homosexuality might be misguided to some extent because because not all of our behavior can be explained through evolutionary psychology or, or biology. Life and organisms and nature is not a clean line between uh, evolutionary advantage and result. Uh, we're living things that have chaos within us, and that chaos produces a, a lot of different kinds of behavior, some, some wonderful and some not so wonderful. Sometimes people, uh, for instance, try to look for the reason behind spree shootings, like when someone rolls into a mall and just guns down 10, 10 people. We, we tend to try to find a reason for that. Why, why would we do that? And sometimes they turn to evolutionary psychology. And to me, I think that there's just a, a natural variance in in who we are and what we do and the thoughts that we have, and it, it manifests sometimes in, in some very interesting ways. Someone creates a, a wonderful work of art. Is that due to some evolutionary instinct? Uh, what's the reason behind that? You know, it, it, sometimes things just don't have clear reasons behind them. And, and looking for reasons is, is wonderful. I think that's, that's why I'm here to some extent. But, but sometimes I think there might not be an answer to the question. And, you know, I'm cool with that. I like a little mystery in the world, you know. This is funny because I didn't intend on talking so much about homosexuality, but now that I'm in the thick of it, I, I might as well just go down the road further. An another thing to think about is that being homosexual doesn't mean you don't have sex with someone of the opposite sex and vice versa. When people survey large groups of Americans and, and other pe people in other cultures, they find that there isn't this clear line between homosexuality and heterosexuality, that uh, a majority of heterosexual people have some homosexual encounters of varying degrees, and that also homosexual people will, will have heterosexual encounters. So this, this notion that uh, homosexuals in the distant past in our ancient uh, history would not have had children is, is just false because, you, you know, it only takes once, right? So you, as a, as a homosexual woman or man, could, could couple with someone of the same sex for a majority of, of the year and, and have a fling on the side, and then you have a child. So, and and um, you would take care of that child as anyone else would. Another theory that I've that I remember reading somewhere that I don't particularly enjoy is some believe that because men have so much sperm in, in constant supply uh, and women have so few eggs in very limited supply that that men have evolved this uh, psychological mechanism 
that motivates them to have sex a lot and to think about sex a lot. And certainly that's stereotypical of men. Uh, I think that there's major problems with that idea. But, um, and frankly, I think it's sexist and offensive. But, and I know we certainly like to joke around about men being uh, constantly thinking about sex. You know, the idea that men are thinking about sex every seven seconds. You know, I think I've heard some statistic like that. It's ridiculous um, when you really look at the science behind it. But, um, but anyway, if, if you go on that assumption that, that men have evolved to be hypersexual and women have not, then men might begin to uh, have urges beyond that which their female partners can satisfy and therefore uh, have always turned to other hypersexual men to have sex with to relieve themselves, so to speak. And, and, and therefore the trait of homosexuality would or at least some tendencies uh, for homosexuality would be present in all men and maybe more present in some men due to individual differences. The problem with this theory is that this doesn't explain female homosexuality at all. It, it, and it paints this picture that homosexual men are these hypersexual sex maniac fiends, which is just not the case at all. Uh, so I, I don't particularly enjoy that theory, as I said. Another way that homosexuality is depicted within evolution that uh, I find problematic is that some people equate homosexuality with other recessive diseases. Again, I'm not a biologist, but, but there are, are some diseases that are uh, passed down through recessive genes. I, I can't even think of one off the top of my head, but is anemia one of those? I think sickle cell anemia might be one. Anyway, the point is, is that they treat it as this abnormal genetic mutated screw up essentially on the DNA level that the urge to couple with someone of the same sex is the same as those other recessive diseases. Not only is that just offensive uh, to me, there's also another interesting perspective on the genetic basis of homosexuality that basically goes like, goes like this. And again, I'm not a biologist, so excuse my um, ignorance on the language, but basically studies have shown that boys who were born into a family that had a lot of older brothers are more likely to be gay. Um, so for instance, if, you know, firstborn boys are less likely to be gay than a boy who was born after four other boys were born. And I think I remember reading somewhere that said that because, uh, each time the mother has a boy in her belly, <laughs> I don't know if that's a technical term, belly, uterus, the mother's body treats it as, a, to some extent, a foreign object and begins to build up antibodies to you know, fight off the infection, so to speak, uh, of, of the male in the belly. And that, that these antibodies build up over time with each successive male fetus that she has in her body. And that these antibodies might influence the genetic somehow, the, the genetic development of the baby fetus, which might result in the fifth baby boy being more likely to be gay. I don't know exactly how it works. but And, and so according to this theory, it, it, it's either an evolutionary advantage to have later born boys gay, or it's just a, a, a simple manifestation of some other mechanism at play like antibodies. 
and, and, and homosexuality therefore provides no evolutionary advantage, but is, is just a, a side effect of some other issue at hand. But, but it could be, you know, conceivably evolutionary beneficial in that if a family has six boys, perhaps the, the older boys have, have already snatched up the, the females, the available females in the, in the area. And, and it might be best if the younger boy didn't couple with a female and was homosexual and therefore available to take care of the children that are uh, bound to be born by these older males. Now, again, this, this doesn't say anything about female homosexuality. For whatever reason, whenever they talk about biological homosexuality, it's almost always focused on male homosexuality, which I find to be problematic and, and offensive. Another theory that I remember hearing, I, I believe it was called the, the, excuse my French, the sneaky fucker theory, <laughs> the sneaky fucker. Um, I, I, I can't remember where I heard that. I think um, Richard Dawkins actually talked about this theory. I don't like this one either, uh, not just because of its ridiculous title, but also because of the premise. This theory goes that if men are to act very feminine, they will not threaten other men when the gay men hang out with their wives, so to speak, and that women will be less threatened by the feminine men. And this is a sneaky tactic that the feminine men evolved to adopt because it lets down the guard of the husbands and the wives and gets them into the inner circle of the women and then they can have sex with the women and therefore have children with them. So, you know, anyone listening to this, I'm sure, is now cringing at, <laughs> at the implications of this theory. And sometimes cringing doesn't necessarily mean that the theory is bad. It just means it's going against our cultural mores which is a good thing that it goes against our cultural mores. But, but when I look at this one logically, again, it provides no explanation for female homosexuality, one. Two, the basic premise is false. Uh, and that premise is that homosexual men are feminine. This, this is a very old notion that somehow gay men are more feminine than heterosexual men. I can think of many people anecdotally who are feminine and, and heterosexual. And I can think of many... Uh, anecdotal uh, examples of homosexual men who are not quote unquote feminine at all. And again, what is feminine exactly? I mean, well, that's culturally defined anyway. You know, women wear pink, men wear blue, that kind of stuff. It's all culture. There are many other genetic hypotheses regarding why, why homosexuality exists in humans, and I won't go into them. But just to kind of summarize, the evolutionary psychology behind homosexuality, you can tell if you, uh, hopefully you can tell that there's a lot of hypotheses out there and all of them, you know, at least the ones that seem to make some sense, they, they seem logical or they, but, but we don't have a way of really testing these hypotheses. in, in my opinion, for, for instance, I, I personally think the one hypothesis I like the most is the one I, I think I said the first, which is that within a gene pool, it benefits the tribe if some of the individuals are homosexual and less likely to bear children because they can take care of their of their nieces and nephews and thereby increasing the overall survivability of the the whole tribe for whatever reason people in evolutionary psychology don't tend to go into this group analysis of evolution but but i i, I tend to like that because it, it, it seems to fit a lot of our instinctual behavior. 
it, it provides an explanation for it. But but even the explanation that I like, this one, it, it's hard to know if it's true or not. And if I just step back from some of these hypotheses that I like and I and I look at it critically, it's very possible that I'm just telling myself this story because it fits what I want it to look like. And and this happens time and time again in science where people without much evidence just start saying stuff and they like how it sounds and then they say, okay, well, there you go. But without a way of evaluating these hypotheses, um, we don't really know. And until we can really evaluate them, they're just hypotheses that have no evidence. They're just so stories. They're stories that we like to tell ourselves about the, the origin of things. So, so overall, my impression of the science behind homosexuality is that it's very difficult to tell why we seemingly have a large percentage of our species who are interested in sex that doesn't involve procreation. So, it, you know, it's interesting. And again, it's a mystery in life. And, you know, I like mysteries. It's, it's good to have a mystery now and then. And furthermore, what does it all matter anyway? I mean, why does it matter that we need to know whether or not homosexuality is innate or not, or based on ev an evolutionary ad advantage that uh, existed 100,000 years ago or not? So sometimes when I think about this stuff, I get kind of wrapped up in this need to somehow know an answer, and I go down a rabbit hole and there is no answer, and then I feel frustrated. But then I remind myself that I don't think I or anyone else needs to know the answer to that. But I think that a lot of times people want to find an answer for a political reason, a good political reason, and that is is to somehow justify homosexuality, that if it has an evolutionary advantage and is therefore, quote-unquote, natural, it is therefore acceptable in a sense. But the assumptions underneath that argument, I think, are problematic in that I don't think we need to justify homosexuality. I think we can look at it face value and, and determine that it doesn't hurt anyone. And it's a, a good thing. Love is a good thing. Attachment is a good thing. And it shouldn't matter if it's same sex or opposite sex. It's love and it's attachment and it's bonding and it's, it's good. So... I don't think we need any justification. I mean, on, on the opposite side, if we're looking for evidence that it is somehow natural for humans to be homosexual, what if we don't find that evidence? What if we find contrary evidence that it's completely unnatural? Like, say we have a time machine. This actually, this would be interesting. Say we have a time machine, we go back in time, 100,000, 200,000 years, and we observe people and we find that no one was homosexual at that time. I mean, there's zero homosexual activity. I find that extremely unlikely, honestly. I, I imagine that it would be at similar, if not higher rates than today. But let's say we find that. Well, does that somehow mean that we should condemn homosexuality today? And if homosexual people want the same rights as heterosexual people, should we therefore strike it down because it's unnatural? No, it doesn't matter if it's natural or not. It's fine. If we just look at it logically without certain problematic cultural restraints, then I think we can all come to the conclusion that homosexuality is fine. Wow, that was a massive tangent. I don't know if I've that much. That's a marathon. I don't know if that's a world record tangent. <laughs> I did not intend on talking about homosexuality in this podcast, um, which means uh, that I will have to break this podcast into more than one part. So I'm going to do a second podcast about the research. Um, so expect that podcast coming soon. 
All right. Well, um, thanks for joining me. I feel like I went out on a limb because I didn't prepare to talk about this. So if I said anything stupid, by all means, let me know in a cogent manner, not in the manner of YouTubers who will just write an ad hominem, 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 <laughs> which one? I need other people here to help me out with my words. Um, a uh, name calling attack uh, is what YouTube people do. So don't do that. Just, you know, let me know cogently what you think it is that I did that was wrong today. I'm sure there are a few things at least. And uh, let me know what you think about it. Uh, I'm interested. If you want to contact me, the easiest way is to go to psychologyinseattle.com and go to the contact us page and contact us. All right. Well, that does it for today's section about evolutionary psychology. I thought I would move on to shamelessly promoting the music of my band, Bread Knife Incident. I've done so on previous episodes. So so if you don't want to listen, you can just stop now and, and let that be that. I want to talk about a Bread Knife Incident song that was on our second album. The song is called Impressions of a Girl. So let's just hear a clip from that song. Well, I And again, you can buy this music on iTunes if you want to support the show. That'd be nice of you. It's a very simple song, actually. There's not, there's not a lot that I say, but it, the lyrics go, Impressions of a girl in another world. She comes at night alone to rap upon the door. Will she kiss me long? Will I make her cry? Will we admit we're wrong? So easy to laugh. If only she saw what's in my mind. The touch of hands that know. It's easy to laugh it off. I always feel funny reading lyrics. It always, I always think, am I, am I, I always feel like one of those pretentious beat poets reading and everyone's snapping afterwards, you know. This, as with other songs, I, I like to write scenes or stories. I, I don't like really to write songs that are difficult to understand. This song is about a guy who waits alone and his, his woman comes to him at night alone, knocks on his door, and she seems like she's from another world, from another planet. She arrives at his door, and he's wondering. Uh, she's arriving, and, and uh, he, he has questions, and he's asking, you know, will, will she kiss me, and will it be a long kiss? Will it be a good kiss? He, but he's also wondering, will I make her cry? Will I hurt her feelings and make her cry? And he's also wondering, will we admit that we're wrong? Um, this is in reference to, I guess, to a fight that they might have had previous to her arriving that night. And then he thinks in his mind, he thinks, it's just so easy to laugh. Um, it's so easy to laugh it off. Why, why do we have to be stuck in this negativity? Um, if only she saw what's in my mind, she would understand. And um, if we could... Um, feel each other, then it, all the conflict and the strife will go away and the worry will go away. I'm a couples therapist and about half of my clients are couples. I like working with them. There's a lot of gratification in working with couples. And a, a lot of times I find that people are desperately wanting to connect with their partner 
but having a very difficult time doing it. And in my experience, if it's one thing I know about people, it's that everyone needs love and everyone wants a lot of love. And, and most people are love deprived, I would say. And I think a lot of times I've seen people stuck in these relationships where it just feels like it's in a constant state of negativity and they try to ignore it and they try to put it behind them or they try to move on and it just keeps coming back. And they, they build up resentments about the other person and, and, um, and these questions run through their mind and they might, they might say things like this, you know, like it, why can't we just laugh this off? Why do we have to be so negative? Why do we have to live with these grudges? She's coming over tonight. I want things to be good, but I'm wondering if things are going to be bad. The, the second verse goes, confessions of a girl from another world leaves me at night alone to see her drive away. Hope she understood. Hope I said it all. Hope we remember it's so easy to laugh. If only she saw what's in my mind. The touch of hands that know it's so easy to laugh it off. So she's, she's left and he is, he has more questions. He's thinking, Oh, I, I you know, I hope she understood. I, I hope, I hope I said it all. So, you know, she came over and they had a talk and, and she's left now and he's wondering, Oh man, I hope, I hope I said all that I needed to say. And I hope she understood. And I hope that we can both remember that we could just laugh this off if we decide to. And I hope we can just be light about this and, and be happy. So, so that's what this song is about. Um, let's hear another clip from that. Hope she understood. Hope I said So regarding the song's composition, I have to admit I stole two of the chords from a Strokes song. Uh, I think the song is um, like 1251 or I can't remember. The, it's, a, it's a time. It's like a, a time of day, like a minute, like 1251 or something. I really love the Strokes. And there's this one part in the bridge where and in the beginning uh, where one of the guitarists plays this funky chord and then it resolves with a major chord. Um, I don't, actually don't know the name of the of the first chord, but I play a, a I do a similar um, convention with the first two chords of the song. It starts with this funky chord and and then the second chord resolves to a major chord and and this is backwards from what a lot of songs are usually. You start with a chord that is pleasing, and then you jump off from there to chords that are a little bit more blue or interesting and off kilter, and then you come back and, and resolve it by the end. Um, but this goes backwards. It starts with this off kilter chord and resolves right away, and then um, you know goes down the road from there. But uh, I just really like things like that. I'm sure the rest of you could care less about stuff like that, but I, I, I like that sort of thing because right away, the song just, this, the song just from the first chord just sounds a little, little, uh, unsettling. So I'll just play that first chord. Impressions of a
the other thing I'll say about this song as with a lot of the songs with the band, I write the song at home on my acoustic guitar and I'm just sitting there and it's all quiet. And then I bring it to the band and we're in our, our practice space in Belltown and, and I just start playing the song and we play through it over and over again until the song uh, evolves into what it eventually evolves into. And the wonderful thing about the, the other guys in my band is that they, they write their own parts and I, I almost never tell them what to do. And it's just such a, it's just such a gratifying experience to bring a song to them and to have them interpret it in their way. And the one thing that the drummer did to this song was Carlos, he made it more rock ish. You know, when you're at home with your acoustic guitar, everything sounds folky and he took it to a much more energetic level, I thought, which I really enjoyed. And, um, Brant, the bassist, he always picks the most perfect notes. I think he uh, is not a, a very uh, standard bassist. He he loves to experiment. Another thing I could say about the song is that when we recorded it, the producer he added the echo during the chorus, which I don't know if it was a mistake or whatever. But when when we listened to it back in the studio, it had this echo, and all of us went ooh. I like that, and and so we kept it. So let's just hear that. The other thing I'll say about this song is the backup vocals that I did. It's funny whenever we go into the studio, whenever we're playing in the practice space or when we're playing shows. It's just the three of us, um, me and the bassist and the drummer, and um, the songs sound a particular way, and the band and the audience get used to that. And then we go into the studio, and I start adding all these other things that um, I've been wanting to add, but just don't have enough people in the band to add those things live. And so one of those things is is backup vocals, and so I do the backup vocals, and then the other guys in the band look at me like, was this in your head the whole time? Because this is very surprising. This is not what I expected you to do when we went into the studio. And so that was the case with this song. The drummer actually didn't like the backup vocals. Uh, he was like, I don't, I don't know if I like the backup vocals in this song. Um, and I, you know, took that to heart for sure, you know, cause I always try to listen to people cause, um, sometimes when you're writing and recording, you get kind of married to things. And, when you hear critical feedback, you think, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And then a year later, you're listening to it and you're thinking, oh, my God, they were right. So uh, I usually try to take notes pretty seriously. And, and I did with this and I, I almost took it out. And then I asked a few other people and they said, no, it sounds great. So so I kept it. But um, but whenever I hear uh, the backup vocals, I always think, I don't think Carlos likes this. <laughs> so uh, so, yeah, let's just listen to some of the backup vocals. The last thing I'll say about this song that I remember now that I'm listening to it, again, when, when we play these songs live, we only have the three of us, so we can only do so much. But when we go into the studio, we can 
do a little more than what we can do live. And one of the things about me is that I am not a lead guitarist. I am, I'm barely a rhythm guitarist. For whatever reason, I just don't have that talent that other people have in terms of becoming extremely proficient on the guitar. And although I think of myself as someone who can write songs, I don't consider myself someone who can exactly play the things that I write. So there's a part in the middle where it, it's a good place for a, a solo of some kind or an instrumental bit. And when we would play live, I would just kind of do something came to mind and it usually wasn't very great, but, um, I didn't really care because usually the audience was fully drunk anyway. So what's the difference? But when we go into the studio, I think, Oh crap, I have to come up with something here because the audience is probably in their car and hopefully not very drunk. So I did something and I, I thought, well, I don't know if this sounds so great. And we were talking in the studio. We're like, Oh, the, the middle bit needs something here. It just sounds so empty because because essentially there's only one guitar part. And when I start playing a solo, the main, the rhythm guitar part goes away. And so you just hear the bass and the drums playing and then this guitar solo, which isn't really a solo solo, but so it just sounded really empty anyway. So in the studio, the producer, he had this, this keyboard sitting in the, in the, you know, con, con, what do you call it, the console room or the control room, or I don't know what you call it. I thought, well, let's add a keyboard part. And since he had the keyboard, I thought, well, the producer must be proficient on the piano. Um, he also had a had a piano in the studio as well. So I thought, well, this this guy's a musician, the producer. Um, he, he could probably pound this out faster than I, I could. So I said, hey, well, why don't we add a keyboard part? And I asked him, I said, you know, to, for the sake of time, maybe you could pick a, pick a part out. Well, and he said, oh, yeah, I, I can do it real fast. And he was very, very confident. And by the way, I really liked him. He was probably the most enjoyable producer slash engineer that I've ever worked with. He was super cool. But anyway, he sits down at the keyboard and he and he, he starts playing it. And I, I start coaching him and he's going, okay, what's that chord? And he's, he's really trying to figure out. And we're spending all this time trying to figure out a part. And like, I don't know how long we spent. And in the end, I just said, I don't think this is working. <laughs> and then I sat down in front of the keyboard and within, I don't know, a couple minutes I came up with this part and, um, it was, I just felt really bad because he, he, you know, said, yeah, I'm, I'm awesome on keyboard. You know, let me at it. I'm going to, I'm going to nail this thing. And then after, I don't know, an hour or two, he, we just sort of looked at each other and thought, mm, I don't, I don't think this is working. And then, so during the solo bit, during the instrumental bit, you can hear a very quiet, uh, keyboard part. It's sort of a Rhodes piano part. And the, uh, the ironic thing is, is that you can barely hear it, even though we spent all this time on it, but without it, the bit would be empty. It's hard. It's like it, you can't hear it, but if it wasn't there, you'd really notice. So, so it's underneath the main guitar part you, again, and you can just barely hear it. So let's just go to that. So if you're still listening to this point, I assume that this isn't too boring. And uh, I thought I would actually play some of the old versions of this song, just just for my own shits and giggles to some extent. When I write a song, um, I, it often changes over time. One of the things that I do, and I, I think other musicians do this as well, is that when I come up with an idea, I record it. 
And since my iPhone has, you know, that microphone button that records things, I pull out my iPhone and I just record it onto the phone. And um, so I won't forget it. I can't tell you how many times I've written songs and not recorded them and thought, oh, I can't remember how it goes. And it's so frustrating. I thought I would just play some of those. The, the thing that you should know is that I write lyrics usually at the very end. And so whenever I am writing songs prior to writing the lyrics, I just make up a bunch of syllables. It's like scatting in a sense. And so it's just, a, it sounds like I'm kind of singing words, but in reality, I'm just, it's almost like I'm speaking tongues. If you're familiar with that, I'm just like, blah, I can't even do it without singing. But anyway, so don't be alarmed. I haven't had a stroke. I just don't have lyrics for this song yet. So let's, so let's listen to the very first iPhone recording of this song. It's, it's actually interesting because I didn't realize it until I, I pulled these out just now that the, the first version of this song was in another key and it was extremely high and I'm singing falsetto the entire time. And it, it sounds funny to me. I, I don't know why I liked it like this, but let's just listen to it. This next early version is, again, just me with my iPhone and no lyrics and on my piano. And this next version is a very strange version that I, I'm so glad we recorded. It uh, was with the band, so I, you know, I bring that th this very simple tune to the band. And the first version that came out of us was a very fast version. So let's just go to that. And again, this is just on the iPhone, so it sounds like crap. One, two, three, four. So again, just to hear some contrast, let's listen to the final version. Well, thanks for indulging me as I blab about music. I hope it doesn't bore you too much. And as I said before, if you didn't want to listen to it, you obviously could have just skipped this entire part. So, And that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. And please take care of yourself. And remember that it's easy to laugh it off. So